Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So sometimes we plan ahead and we have a topic or we have a guest, and we always have to plan ahead with a guest. And other times... I'm about to eat lunch, and Doug is getting his first coffee, and we message each other, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, what are we going to talk about? Yeah. And so Doug's idea was to talk about this article by Bob Lefsitz. It's, it, he does this thing called the Lefsitz Letter. And he has an article, I think it was last week, about ABBA's failure in the marketplace. We should explain who Bob Lefsitz is. He's a, a former uh, record executive, producer, A&R guy. Just he's very, wasn't very involved in the industry, and he's very critical of it now. And he's not young. No, he's not young. He's, our, he's in our He's you know, our age, if not a little bit older. And, yeah. and he often talks in his letters about the bands he saw back in, you know, Isle of Wight and Woodstock. I don't know if he was at Woodstock, but he mentions things from back in the 60s. So Doug says that Lefsitz thing about ABBA had a profound effect on me. Anything there? He makes lots of points. Uh, Doug, there's no apostrophe before the S in lots. Sometimes there's punctuation that comes out of my fingers. Sometimes there isn't. So I just leave it. Okay. So ABBA's failure in the marketplace. Before we get to some of the points that he made that are valid, I just want to talk about the failure of this new ABBA album called Voyage. In the first 24 hours after the announcements of, of its release in the UK, it had 40,000 pre-orders, and within three days, it had 80,000 pre-orders. By October, it had 111,000 pre-orders. That's the UK. It debuted on the UK album chart with 204 chart sales, 90% of these being physical. 90% being physical, 180,000. Now, when we talk about streaming, a stream equivalent album is either 1,250 tracks or 3,750 tracks. If you're on a paid plan, it's 1,250. If you're on an ad-supported free plan, it's 3,750. So I did the math. That 180,000 albums on a paid plan will go the cheapest route is 225 million streams. That's on launch. In Germany, it debuted number one on the album's chart with over 200,000 chart sales. It was the fastest-selling vinyl album of the 21st century with 29,900 vinyl copies sold. And this is a new ABBA album. This is a new ABBA album. And I just want to point out the failure in the marketplace. It peaked at number one in Australia, Austria, Belgium, Czech Republic, Denmark, Netherlands, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Iceland, Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, Portugal, Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland, the UK, and it hit number two in the US. We can also point out that it is charting gold in Austria, France, and the United Kingdom, platinum in Germany with 200,000 sales, only 78,000 in the US. So it's not doing well in the US. Now, Bob Lefsitz being American, he might think that there is no world record market. So maybe he's thinking because it's not doing that good in the US, it's tanking. It's number three on Amazon in the UK in CD sales. And here's the thing. This is the CD that people buy when they never buy CDs. Yes, that's right. This is the Christmas record that people are going to buy for people who don't listen to music. The biggest mistake that leftists make, fourth paragraph, but their music is out of touch with today's scene. Youngsters aren't aware of them, and the avenues of mainstream exposure are more limited than ever before. 
My partner's six-year-old granddaughter can sing along to every single song in Mamma Mia. So suggesting that youngsters don't know them, he's just, I, I really appreciate a lot of what he says, but in this one, he's way, way off. Well, he's got, but let's look at it from this point of view. Now, when he says that it doesn't do well in the United States, I can believe it because the people in the United States are, oh, ABBA, passe. And, and, and as he says, unless you're an oldster that hooks up with um, a, a, a groovy new producer like Elton John did, you're not going to get into that market. Now, Mamma Mia may be on the lips of, of six-year-olds around the world, but none of this new music is going to be popular at all. It's just, like you say, it's, it's going to be that, uh, that paperweight CD that you buy for people. I would think that kids who really like Mamma Mia are probably going to listen to this a lot. What's interesting is a lot of this is physical sales, including vinyl. There's not that much in terms of digital downloads, and I don't know where the streaming is. I didn't look at, you know, Apple Music has these city charts, charts by city, so New York, London, et cetera. I didn't bother to go through them to see where it stands. But the point is, there is no monolithic marketplace. He's totally clueless if he thinks that everything is about streaming. It's not. Add to that, and this I think is an aberration, they're doing this concert where they're holograms, they're doing like six months in London, so it's more like a, a show, like a Broadway-type show, West End show, than a concert. And my guess is that since they're holograms, it won't be expensive. Oh, no, it's the same um, thing over and over again. Every It's a movie they play every night. Isn't that how it works? Well, it's not a movie. It's on stage. Yeah, but it's but a, you, you, won't have the, you won't have the cost of the road crew. You won't have the cost of the singer. Or maybe, although maybe they're singing to a live band. I don't know if they're not. Maybe there's a live band with them singing vocals. But it's not going to have the same cost as if you're paying the artist every night to do this. So they're going to be raking in the money. Not successful in the marketplace? Here, I mean, here's one of the th mistakes I think he makes is that um, he has a theory and it's pretty obvious that it's that it's true is like you can't make records the way you used to and get famous. It doesn't work that way anymore. Um, famous people get the hits. P struggling artists don't. So this fits his theory that um, that you can't you can't just release a record and and make money. You have to, there has to be some kind of performance attached to it. And that's what he's telling younger people. It's like, don't expect to, you're going to be discovered. You're going to make a hit record and then you're going to be famous. It's the other way around now. And that's his main point is that most people don't realize that the point is not to make a record anymore. The point is to perform. You use the record as like a calling card, as a, as a demo, as a, you know, as a resume. So this, that, observation he makes of ABBA fits into that theory. Well, but he discusses that. He says it in, in his final paragraph, he says, it won't go on like this forever with only young acts in narrow genres owning spots in the Spotify top 50. He's just talking about Spotify. The market is well beyond Spotify. It's Apple Music, it's Tidal, it's other, you know, smaller streaming services. Yes, Spotify is where the money is because they have more subscribers. But this is physical sales. No one has sold as many CDs. They sold more CDs in the first week in Germany than every other album on the CD chart <laughs> that's, combined. That's pretty they, good. It, in one week, they are the best-selling CD in Germany, right? Yeah. This is sui generis. You can't even talk about something like this and comparing it to the market. There is no. This is this is a once-in-a-generation thing. It charted number two 
in the U.S., the highest they have ever charted. The best they ever did before that was 14. Remember, ABBA is a European band. It's, it's a European sound. They come from the Eurovision contest. It is, you know, if you ever watch the Eurovision contest, it's that kind of music. It's campy, happy, poppy, sappy, campy. Yeah. yeah. So I think the, the whole point is that there are many markets out there, some of them that just aren't tapped the way we expect. And even though things are changing and in 50 years, you couldn't have another ABBA that does this, my guess, but this is still happening. And while I don't agree with the virtual concerts, I think it's kind of obvious there was a pent-up demand for ABBA. You know, they've got Mamma Mia on, I assume it's on Broadway, it's in London on the West End, tickets from 30 to 150 pounds to go see the musical live. Is there another Mamma Mia, like a Mamma Mia 2 on Netflix or something? I think there's a Mamma Mia 2 movie as well. Yeah, because it sounds like something that Netflix would do. It's like, sure, we'll make a Mamma Mia 2. Why not? Oh, I don't think it's Netflix. I think it's a okay. sequel to the original. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I Not my kind of movie to watch, to be honest. But. No, no, <laughs> no. But but I think, I think the point is interesting that there is still some vestiges of the old media music market that are hanging out there. I mean, look at the Grateful Dead. They're selling 14,000 units of their Dave Picks series four times a year. 14,000, that's not bad. That's, you know, 64,000 two or three CD sets in a year, plus a box set, and they sell out. This is a limited edition. That's the number's 14,000 currently. And they sell out every year. Well, so, there's also a lot of, um, there's also a lot of repurposed stuff. We've talked about this a million times. The Rolling Stones are repurposing a lot of their catalog and saying, here's a blues album that is a bunch of our bluesy tracks, and here's a bunch of live tracks. And for goodness sake, that drummer just died, and they're still going. You know, I mean, how do you how do you keep going? It, it's going to take. Right? It's going to the the only time they're going to stop is when either Mick or Keith dies. Yeah. If Ronnie Wood dies, they can keep going. They can replace him. But if Mick or Keith dies, that's you know that's the Glimmer Twins. You can't replace the two of them. It's still uh, fascinating though that uh, that this whole ABBA thing. I really. It, it, it reminds me, I don't know much about Taylor Swift either, but it reminds me of these huge undertakings. They have to be multi-pronged. You have to have uh, uh, an audio component. You have to have a streaming component. You have to have a, a stage component. You have to have a film component. You need all of these things in order to get to be number one in Europe or wherever. And a lot of, a lot of production companies, let's call them, can't can't rise to that uh, that level. I think most artists don't have the scope to do that. Yeah. Because it requires a large investment. It requires a certain amount of imagination. Um, I know Coldplay's on tour, and I would say that Coldplay, they had their day when they were the number one band in the UK, but they, they did do a film a live, a film of a live concert, but that's a standard concert movie. I mean, it, there, there are very few artists that, that can go beyond the music and the video of the concert and things like that. It's not easy. It's a complicated thing. You know, Pink Floyd, The Wall, that's a good example, right? They got the album and they have the live performance, but which ended up being so expensive that they couldn't even do it enough. Then, then the movie came out a few years later and that maintained it. Then Roger Waters has been living off it for more than 30 years. And that's kind of kept it alive, but there are, I can't think of many things. You know, imagine if four Beatles were alive right now. 
right? With this documentary that's out, they could be doing, they could just do everything. Yeah. They could do everything. Well, you know, well, it's, it's easy to, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Who knows what how history would have changed if there were yeah. four Beatles still with us. Yeah. But still, yeah. you're right. If they were suddenly to reappear, <laughs> it would be it would yeah. be colossal. Yeah. But there there have never been more than a handful of artists of the, this sort of scope that yeah. rise to that level. You know what the Stones, the Beatles, I mean, Grateful Dead, and even Grateful Dead is is like at the top of a pretty big niche, but they're still kind of niche. Yeah. Pre hip hop, Pink Floyd maybe is probably the biggest in terms of prog rock. Who? The um, whom? I don't think so. But they used to mount very large tours. Yeah, Bob Dylan. Uh, Bob but what's sure. interesting is Dylan, you know, still planning eighty to hundred concerts a year, but a lot of small venues. He's not interested in doing anything big. He did do that video a few months ago, which was essentially uh, video recordings of of lip sync performances of songs, which was quite interesting. But. There aren't many artists that get to the level of like the Super Bowl halftime show like this. I, I he said Leftset said something in this article that I thought was really interesting is that the Eagles had put out a Walmart only album, and now they don't even play stuff from the older whenever they go out. I don't know how many times the Eagles actually perform, but I mean they do music. They do new music now. They don't. Yeah. They don't want to hear the old. People don't want to hear the older music. I thought that was pretty interesting. But what I thought was really interesting was that they targeted their listeners through Walmart. Well, that's market research. Yeah. That, the, the idea of just recording in a garage and sending a demo and getting signed and hoping that someone's going to lead the way is over. They, they have data on their listeners. They know where they're from. They knew back in the 70s which cities were selling faster, where the albums were selling more. And this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a surprise to know they were selling in certain markets. What I find surprising, though, is that Lefsitz is kind of singling out. I mean, he starts off saying um, they'd do Bafo at the B.O., but the only people who were interested in a new ABBA album turned out to be in the media. I mean, how could he be wronger than that? <laughs> You know, looking at those numbers, I think he must have, I don't know the date of this article, it must have been like two days after the album came out, before the weekly chart numbers came out. It is Be about two weeks old, yeah. Because I haven't heard the music, but I have seen chatter on Twitter, it's like boring, terrible, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, you know, these are the same people who were raving about the Beatles documentary right now, so they don't really <laughs> resonate with ABBA's music. Or these are the same people who are like Taylor Swift fans and, and Adele and all that. Yeah. The, the market yeah. is multifarious, and, and it always has been. And a good word, huh? That's a $10 word. Yeah, well, well multifarious. Yeah. Is that yeah. a real word? Or yeah, are you yeah. just... Yeah. I, I, I think like in the 70s, when he grew up and when we, you know, our prime musical years, the market was extremely focused. It wasn't fragmented. You had two concert promoters in a big city like New York. You had, you know, mainly two or three venues that had concerts and the big bands all played in Madison Square Garden. The smaller ones played in the Palladium. You had a hierarchy of stars and that was it. And now it's so much different because imagine if ABBA wanted to make a Netflix only documentary. They could get a lot of money for that. Absolutely. Imagine if they wanted to target a specific country, a specific age group even. You know, Mamma Mia is is huge. I mean, it's huge. Well, it's it's 
it's very interesting how you have to do all this to maintain, you know, your millions, your bigness. Yeah, you're, yeah. But see, most musical artists will never get to that level. And it's always a little bit difficult to just talk about what the 1% is doing. And here it's probably a tenth of 1% in terms of artists, if not even less than that. It's always difficult to extrapolate from that to the broader market. Because take your local jam band who plays in, you know, a half a dozen venues in their region, sells CDs at the shows, makes a decent living, has, you know, reliable fans. That's what they want. They don't necessarily want more. They're not out to, to they, they don't have shareholders. My guess is ABBA has shareholders there. Of course, they're an entity. They're a, they're a limited liability company. They're, <laughs> they're a, people always refer to, well, Taylor Swift did this and Taylor Swift did that. Taylor Swift worked in the studio, yes, but everything else, she didn't sit around doing all the figuring. Um, yeah. You know, she's got a production company that handles all that stuff. So it's, it's kind of funny to think of these people as doing it by themselves, as if Adele could do any of this by herself. Yeah. I found it interesting when the Grammy Award nominations came out last week. Now, I don't usually look at this, but I sometimes I look to see who the classical nominees are because, you know, it might be people that we've interviewed on the show. Taylor Swift's album Evermore. Bon Iver, Heyman the National, featured artists Jack Antonoff, Aaron Dessner, Bryce Dessner, and Taylor Swift producers Thomas Bartlett, J.T. Bates, Robin Bainton, Stuart Bogey, Gabriel Cavazos, C.J. Camariri, Aaron Dessner, Bryce Dessner, Scott Devendorse, Matt Demona, John Gautier, Trevor Hagen, Mikey Friedman, Hart, Son Hetchison, Josh Kaufman, Benjamin Lands, Nick Lloyd, etc., etc., etc. There's about 50 names who are on the list. Go down to Kanye West, there's about 200 names. So the idea of any one person doing anything like that, the one with the fewest names is actually Love for Sale, Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. There's a producer, there's three engineers, mixers, and there's two mastering engineers listed. But anything else, that's real, right? But all the other ones, there's dozens. Some of them even have a hundred different names that are involved. And these are people, there's someone who wrote a beat for one song for 30 seconds in one song and gets a credit for that. There's someone who played harmonica on 10 seconds of another song. You know, it's... It's constructed. It's, it's not organic. It's, uh, it's a total construction thing. Yeah. What's interesting is they don't list all those names for most of the Grammy nominations. Most of them are just either the performer or the singer-songwriter, et cetera, et cetera. In classical, they mention the producers. But in that one category at the top, which is album of the year, that's the one where it's awarded to artists and to featured artists, songwriters of new material, producers, recording engineers, mixers, Jeez. and mastering engineers. So it could, be, it could be hundreds of people. There could be, yeah. I wonder if they all get the statue. Or if they have to timeshare it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they all, maybe they get a little statue. You can hang it from your rearview mirror or something. Yeah, but even if there's two artists, Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga, who gets to keep the statue? Well, I think Lady Gaga's going to keep it because Tony's not feeling too good these days. Did you see yeah, that? But that's, that would... I watched that. By the way, we're recording this the day after they did a TV special in the United States last night. And I watched about 10 minutes of it, which is good. I mean, I like, I like the Tony Bennett, Lady Gaga stuff. Um, it was okay, you know. Then I went back to football. Yeah. Football was on. <laughs> Had to watch that. How was the football? It was great. I was up till 11 o'clock. That's why I'm so groggy this morning. That's why I'm like, ah. oh, what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> yes, because you, you usually go to sleep very early. Yeah. I like the yeah. way he, he kind of put a fine point on, look, the old days are over. You don't, 
you don't play, as you said, you don't play your hard outs in your region and and wait for the, the, the record company exec to be sitting in the front row and I'm going to make you a star. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, I really like that musicians are doing what we do, working out of their home, um, making enough money to to survive, to get by, to enjoy themselves, to to bring in a, 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 enough cheer to enough people that they are appreciative and they can make a living at it. I like that. I don't like, I don't know, I don't like superstars. They get, uh, they get a little, they get cranky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I well, I think, you know, we're living on the memories of the 70s where Led Zeppelin had their own jet plane and stuff and... And when we could see the trajectory of an artist who started playing in a small venue and then bigger and bigger and bigger as they went on. It was fun um, to watch. Like to, it was fun to watch. I, yeah. yeah, I like to point out how I saw Dire Straits in their first New York performance in 1979 in The Bottom Line, which is a cabaret that holds two or 300 people. Held, it's closed. And then three years later, they're playing in stadiums. You know, we see that happen, but it, we're not really seeing it anymore because... Lefzit says that music is live, right? That, that the live is what counts these days. And that's not even true because it's two types of music. Those, those 200 people on the Kanye West album, he can't do a live performance. What did he do? He, did, he went to stadiums in Atlanta and he played the album over the PA. Right, exactly. I thought had that was a listening great. party. <laughs> so he can't even do a live performance of all that stuff. Right. And, and as much as the studio albums always sounded different from the live albums, and Pink Floyd could not really do Dark Side of the Moon live as it sounded in the studio, you knew that it was a different thing. But today, these things are so over-engineered and overproduced that do, do people even want to listen to that music live? I guess they go to see Taylor Swift, they go to see Adele, who, by the way, I don't know if you saw that clip from the thing on TV in the UK a week ago. Yeah. Emma Thompson asks her, was there any person that inspired you when you were young? And she was talking about this English teacher she had that inspired her. And, well, the English teacher is right here in the audience. Mm -hmm. Production company. Yes, production company. <laughs> Adele's reaction was she didn't know, right? Of course but not. Of course, they I had obviously that. planned it and had kind of figured out the kind of answer she was going to give to the question. But she is a performer who is more than just a singer. You can see with her stage presence when she's talking, even that she's a lot different from a lot of the other performers. But there's only a few of these every generation, and and I think people in the music industry expect there to be as many of these larger than life musical performers as there were in the 70s. Yeah. And it's not going to happen now. It can't ha can happen now because of the way people listen to music. We don't, we've done this a million times. Nobody, we don't all listen to the same funnel. We don't all have the same three radio stations to listen to and, and, and develop. To. We, we are listening to splintered music. I listen to Apple Music. Somebody else listens to Spotify. Somebody else does Bandcamp. Somebody else this, that, the other thing. There's no consistency. It's not just that. It's the way music is produced now. It's produced yeah. in such a fragmented way. I don't know what channel this Beatles documentary is on. We don't have it here in the UK yet. There's a clip that's been making the rounds on Twitter that I saw last night or this morning of Paul McCartney riffing and then and in two minutes, he's gone from these riffs to, like, get back. And it's like the whole song was just born in two minutes. And it was amazing. Whereas today, you'd have to have 57 people, each with their own version of logic in different locations, right. sending files into someone who's going to put them together. And I, I just don't think that creativity exists anymore. But Well, of course it does, but we just don't hear it all the time. You're not... 
you know, you're not borrowing through land, uh, Bandcamp or, or, or things like that, trying to find, you know, the, the yeah, best garage band. Yeah, but this isn't Bandcamp. This was the Beatles who had eight million number one singles. And well, then he better, you better get it. You better grind out another million seller, Polly, right now. We want it right now. You know, back then they had a, a contract where they had to produce music. You have to produce it. It's not like wait around yeah. five years like Adele does. It's like the Beatles had a contract yeah. to produce two albums and a certain number of singles every year. It's no wonder that they couldn't stand touring and producing at the same time. Um, so, I mean, it's a different era. In some cases, these recording contracts have led to very bad music being released because someone has a contractual obligation album. I mean, that's, what, that's why Lou Reed made Metal Machine music. He had to deliver an album to, I think it was Warner, and it was, you know... I mean, there's a lot of people who try to pretend that it's a masterpiece, but it really wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it's a trope that, oh, we got to come up with something for our next album. Black Sabbath. I remember Tommy Iommi was asked one time, when you come up with a new album? He says, well, i got to come up with some new riffs. I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's just, I think I've run out of riffs. You know, it's <laughs> like I need another. Dun, 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 dun. I can't think of another one. I wrote that one. I don't know what else to do. So <laughs> I, thought, I always thought that was funny. But they were under pressure to produce. Nowadays, not so much. Somebody yep. else does it for them. They can be sitting on the toilet and go and do like a little rap or a little song, and it can be taken and, and exploited into a, a full three and a half minute single. So, I mean, what's the difference? Remember when there was so much money being generated by ringtones? Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't no, long it ago. Wasn't. That's funny. That was a, that was an industry. <laughs> do Do you know that Apple still has a ringtone store? Do they really? Yeah, I'm going to tell you how to get there. If you go on your iPhone, you go to settings. Um, let's see, sounds and haptics, then you go for ringtone, then you tap tone store. So you can't get this through the iTunes store anyway. And so up in the chart on the tone store is the Nutcracker, Christmas 2020 music, fancy like Walker Hayes, all I want for Christmas is you, Maria Carey, whole bunch of Christmas stuff, Harry Potter, et cetera, et cetera. So it's still there, but it's hidden. You can't, there's no other way you can get to the tone store. Don't hear, uh... I don't hear ringtones anymore. I don't, I used to hear them a lot. Because everyone's got their phones on silent, so it vibrates. <laughs> That's right. I don't even use the phone, quite frankly. I don't even use the phone the, part. The, the only people I hear with ringtones is like, whenever our plumber comes to fix something, he's got ringtones. Because they're working with things that make noise, so they have to hear it over, over that. Or on a TV show or a movie, people have ringtones. But it's never a song. It's always a stock ringtone because they don't want to pay royalties. Or... It's a joke. Yes, it could be a joke. It's like, ha, huh, listen to what he's, listen to what his ringtone yeah. is. That's pretty yeah. funny. Wow, how did we get to ringtones from ABBA? Dead media? <laughs> <laughs> We're able to keep doing the next track like the way we've been doing because of the generosity of our Patreon patrons. You can be one too. Why not? A couple of bucks a month, uh, send it our way and... We'll put it to good use, I assure you. Patreon.com slash The Next Track is our address, and we'd appreciate your support. Kirk, you have a next track pick. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to pick something that I've already chosen as the next track. It is Robert Fripp's Music for Quiet Moments series of ambient soundscapes. He released 52 of these starting the lockdown, and this time it's on CD, eight CDs, and I've been listening to this on Apple Music since they were released, but the CDs came out just last week. I pre-ordered. It's the kind of music that I want to have on physical media. I ripped all eight CDs, put them in a playlist, and I just put them on shuffle. 
These tracks range from about three minutes to about 42 minutes. It's just under nine hours altogether. It's fascinating music. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll also put a link to the playlist that I created on Apple Music as these were being released. So if you're a cheapskate and you don't want to buy them on CD, you can still listen to them. Doug, what have you got? Um, Corey Harris is one of my favorite uh, blues guitar players, although I don't like thinking of him as a blues player. He does play acoustic guitar. But Corey Harris pretty much does traditional music, but he t- borrows, he visits places and takes their sound and incorporates it into his sound. And he really gets some very interesting music, uh, mostly based on, I don't know, I want to say the Caribbean music, but he also uses American sounds. He uses African sounds. Um, his latest album is called In- The Insurrection Blues. So you can imagine what some of the material is about. I've only listened to one track because I've been looking forward to a time when I can sit, actually sit down and listen to the whole thing in a nice, quiet way. I love his stuff. It's raw. It's, um, it's, it's historical. It's, it's world music. It's blues music. It's Caribbean music. It's African music. It's really just delicious stuff. And the way he takes the, uh, this old-timey sense of, uh, of, of, of storytelling and... He's just really good at incorporating all of these elements into a modern blues, into a modern sort of folk blues. Delicious stuff. But anyway, I'm hoping this whole record is as good as all of his previous stuff. It's called The Insurrection Blues by Corey Harris, and it's my next track. This was episode number 225 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website, You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>